Thank you very much. As an author, I have to begin by plugging my new book. Uh, anything you have, any questions left tonight, it's in the book. So let's, let's start with that. This project began for me in 2005, when we had moved down to New Orleans, Louisiana, in July. We had about six very, very good weeks down there before Hurricane Katrina arrived, at which point our home, our car, our kids' toys, everything we owned pretty much was destroyed, including my university, which was shut down then for about five months afterwards. And in that period of unemployment that followed Katrina, I had a lot of questions to ask myself, my family, my friends, mainly what do we, what do, we do now? Uh, as survivors, as a scholar, what's my responsibility to people nearby? So my first book project was over, and this project began. And this project really began, actually, with this map. This map has three types of information. One, of course, is geography, where things go. And for those of you who are inquisitive, my house uh, is about right there, or it was at least. The, the foundation is there, but that's uh, 6944 Canal Boulevard. <clears throat> so it's got place information, of course. It's a map. It also has water depth information on this map. So if you're looking closely, the darker blue areas are areas which had roughly eight plus feet of water, and the more yellowish areas are the drier areas, so dry land. Uh, those had one foot or fewer. And you sort of have shades there of blue and, and, uh, and yellow throughout. The third layer of data on this map come from interviews that we've been doing in New Orleans, so far with around 5,000 people. These dots that you see on the screen, yellow, green, and red, try to indicate where individuals were in their own minds in the recovery process. If it was red, they said things hadn't gone well, they were not recovered at all. If it was green, they thought things had gone very well and they were fully recovered and someplace yellow would be in the, in the middle. So my first question to you tonight is, what pattern do you see? Okay, so, so people who think they're doing well and are badly, it's kind of mixed up? Okay, please, yeah. The first thing I noticed, along with the information you just said, was that there's no direct correlation between darker blue areas, which have more water, and the red dots, which feel less recovered. In other words, you could have 10 feet of water in your backyard, or in my case, in my house, and you could say everything's fine. Or you could have less than a foot of water and say things weren't going well at all. And, very good point, notice, first of all, we couldn't find people to talk to in some areas, like this grid here. We couldn't find a family to speak to there. There was no one living there. But the green dots seem to cluster, especially, and the red dots too. People live near each other when they can. So this was the first hint I had. This is back in 2005, 2006, about what processes, what factors might make a difference in that recovery process. And by the time things were done, I had selected four different megacatastrophes, large-scale disasters that took place over the last 100 years. The first was here in Tokyo in 1923. The most recent was Hurricane Katrina, my favorite personal one. And in between, we have Kobe, the Hanshinawaji Daishinsai, and the Ninoshin Tsunami. Now, 
If you noticed in that previous map, by the way, if someone asks you after this talk, so how is New Orleans doing? And you have this map, what do you tell them? How is New Orleans doing? Some of them, yes. Yeah, some of them, yes. We tried to get every block that we could find at least one person as best we could. So obviously we, we may have missed them during the day or whatever, but by and large. We actually, we know exactly how many people, but we know right now the overall population is one-fifth lower than it was before 2005, August, right? So we, we actually knew that. In fact, yeah, right. Good. I mean, Black Mine, Lower Ninth Ward, Broadmoor, a lot of these areas are missing people tremendously. But I mean, what I would tell them is the following. You can't talk about the recovery of New Orleans because recovery isn't a citywide phenomenon. Recovery means house by house, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood. And because of that, all the data that I collected for these disasters begins at the most micro level I could find, the community level, the house level, the neighborhood level. So for example, I wanted to find information on neighborhoods in Tokyo in the 1920s. By the way, if you're a history person, right, you know that the current organization that we have now, like Natoku and so forth, didn't exist 100 years ago. Right? That wasn't there at all. right? But if you're a fan of the Keishicho, of the police, I've got very good news for you. Over in Wasada's library is now a slightly more crinkly book you can find that we found early. Every single koban in Tokyo, every single police box, kept handwritten records on a monthly basis of people living in their backyards. Each koban is roughly one kilometer by one kilometer. They divided Tokyo into 40 of these koban areas. We scanned the records from the 1920s, assembled them into a database, and that created our roughly 40 neighborhoods in Tokyo, defined not by our modern-day Minatoku and all that kind of stuff, but rather by the way the koban, the police themselves. So don't forget, by the way, back in those olden days, they lived in those boxes. Ever wonder why there's a second story in the koban? They lived in there, right? This wasn't some place they went to you know, visit and, and go home. They and their families lived in the Koban. So these people lived the lives of the people living nearby. They were done everything that happened. So we have information on, uh, let's see, STDs. We have information on the number of prostitutes. Uh, voting turnout, we have information on the number of pawnbrokers, pawn lending rates. We've got, it's all, by the way, all in free on, on my website. All the data is for free on my website right now. Okay, that's 100 years ago. Kobe. Kobe, as you know, has nine wards which are slightly bigger than zip codes, but gave us a pretty good feeling of how things were going. For India, of course, India is a vast, it really is a continent, actually, when you think about it hard. So I spent several months in India gathering data from villages. I want, that's the village level. And finally, we broke New Orleans into zip codes, again, to get that micro-level data. Okay, this is the structure of the project. If you read through the literature out there to explain disaster recovery, there are five major types of theories out there to try and connect a factor to an outcome. The first is the most common. It's money. In fact, I just spent several hours today at a conference rolling my eyes a lot because the biggest argument was Tohoku needs what? What does Tohoku need? More money. Send more money. It's going to help. I don't know how. It's going to help. You know, build more bridges or something. As a quick aside before we get back to the project here, 
if you follow Toku's disaster recovery process right now, almost every project being built, and I say almost, isn't some project designed for the community. It's a project that was on the books beforehand in Kokodo Kochucho's and Imlet's hands. And they now have the funding to build those bridges and dams and roads and new schools and new infrastructure projects that they had in the books in 2004. So the money that you see pouring in that's not going to Okinawa, for example, or paying for someone's new golf course, that money is not for the citizens in Tohoku. That money is for the large-scale construction projects, the Koko Jigyo that Japan is so well known for. Right? Okay, so the first theory is if you pour more money into an area that's been hurt by disaster, it will build back quicker. Or if they're wealthier, they'll do better because they've got more money. They've got insurance, they have more money in the bank and so forth. Fine. Second argument is about governance. If we have a strong, efficient, focused mayor, if we have a strong, efficient, focused governor, prime minister, president, emperor, someone in command, somehow things will be better, right? New Orleans case in point, we argued over and over again, if it hadn't been Mayor X, Mayor Nagin, it'd be Mayor Y, and he'd be much better. If it hadn't been Brownie in FEMA, it'd be someone else. If President Bush hadn't been there, right, the blame game. So we assume somehow that governance makes a difference in the process of recovery. Damage. By the way, this is, yeah, this, this is the 1920, this is Nihonbash. They've actually reversed, if you read the kanji, they've actually reversed the kanji here. But this is, this is a building near Nihonbash. I said before, the argument is, the more damage to an area, the slower the recovery. Hopefully you believe that's not true already, if I'm doing my job. Two more theories I found that are kind of funny. One is population density. Economists love this one. They argue like this. Metropolitan areas are highly dense. Finding free space is very hard. So if you have an earthquake in Tohoku, it'll be easier to rebuild there quickly because there's plenty of free space. And that's what you really need, right? You just need some free space. Okay, final one. This is, I like this picture. This is from the favelos in Brazil. The left side of this line are the dirt floored shanties made of garbage, literally. The right side are condominiums with a pool in each individual out, outside balcony there. Right? A very thin line between poverty and wealth. Inequality, they argue. Societies that are more unequal will somehow have a slower time rebuilding. These are the theories you'll find if you start reading the literature. What's funny, though, is none of those theories is talking about the internal organization of the community under study. That is, none of them are focusing on how the individuals who live there live their lives. Are they well-connected? Are they living by themselves? Are they, do they have many friends? Are they loners? Do they have contacts? Do they ever go outside their homes? So the book argues the following, that there are really three different types of connections that bind us together. First type we call bonding social capital. For example, who here has a PhD? Don't be shy. It's okay. I'll make one of you. Think about your network right now, right? Think about your network of friends, Facebook friends, Twitter friends, whatever, right? Probably some of your friends have PhDs too. If we went into a high school classroom, right, and we asked them how many of your friends have PhDs, you can guess probably very few of them, right? We call this homophily, which means what? We tend to be near people who are like us, right? Ethnicity, background, nationality, religion, whatever it's going to be, most of our friends are like us. One is social capital, and of course family fits in here too. The second type of connection occasionally breaks beyond that homophilistic connection, to bridging social capital. What does bridging mean? It means you know someone who's different than you in a critical way. Different background, religion, class, status, educational level, whatever it's gonna be. 
How do you build bridging social capital? Well, normally through strange institutions like bocce ball clubs or opera singer associations, schools, bars, right? Anything that breaks you out of the normal small group of friends that you have or the family that you spend time with and connects you to someone who's different than you. So for example, in America, the PTA, Parent Teacher Association, forces parents from different backgrounds to go visit those teachers the same night. Right? There's a third type of connection that people have to each other. We call this linking social capital. Linking means I have a friend with some kind of power. Maybe they're the head of DIJ. Maybe they're the head of FEMA or the head of World Vision or an NGO. Maybe they're in the mayor's office or the governor's office. Right? These three types of connections all play a role before, during, and after disasters. And here's why. The first choice that any survivor makes, whether they're in India, Japan, America, is to return to a damaged home, a destroyed condominium, a broken down business, and to invest time and energy in rebuilding that home. Or get up, take your kids and your teddy bear, which we had left from our, our house at least, our teddy bear, and drive someplace else. Exit, or voice. Exit means you leave your old home and you begin life someplace else. In New Orleans' case, one-fifth of the residents have done that. Now, whether it's by choice or not, we can talk about later, but exit clearly is an option. Voice means you stay put. Whatever the time costs, whatever the financial costs, whatever the psychic costs to rebuild, and you work together with people living nearby, and you make your voices heard. If there were no parks for kids nearby to play in, as they're rebuilding your neighborhood, you demand park space. If the roads were too narrow for the fire trucks to get through, like in Kobe, you ask for them to widen those roads. Right? Here's what we found. Whether you're living in India, Japan, or America, individuals with more ties, bonding, bridging, unlinking, more connections, more friends, more neighbors that they know, those individuals use voice more often. Individuals who don't feel connected to their city, to their neighborhood, to their friends, to their neighbors, those individuals who are mobile, they leave. By the way, notice where I'm standing right now, seven years after my house was destroyed in New Orleans. Right? We didn't go back. Exit and voice. Very first choice, social capital strongly influences the choice of exit or voice. First way. Second one. Collective action. After a disaster, many of the biggest problems that survivors face are collective action problems. Now, many of us feel strongly about issues, right? Whether you're pro-nuclear, anti-nuclear, pro-guns, anti-guns. How many of us marched last Friday night at 6 o'clock in the Prime Minister's office? You guys weren't there, huh? What are you guys doing Friday nights? Come on, right? Most of us rely on someone else to do that work for us. I'm a busy guy, so I'll pay a check to the NRA. Well, probably not, but write a check to the NRA and ask them to lobby to keep those assault rifles on my street. I'm a busy guy. I'll let someone else go march against nuclear power in Kaminoseki, right? Collective action means, rather than free riding on someone else in my group, I and everyone else who can take responsibility and get involved. Now, what kind of collective action problems are there after disaster? Well, lots. First of all, if you live in Haiti or America, looting is a problem, right? No individual homeowner can stop looting. But a group of us can, right, if we get together. 
and have a patrol, for example? How about getting our area cleaned of debris, glass, blood, right? Like my neighborhood. What do you do? You organize a group. You get out there with plastic bags. You pick it up together. One person can't do it. It takes a group. I'll tell you two quick stories, one successful and one failed collective action. Here in Kobe, actually, 1995, after the earthquake, the government of Kobe offered a fantastic offer to every condominium in the city. Every private condominium was offered the following deal. If each member of the condominium will sign off on this agreement, the government will come in and pick up all the gareki, all the garbage, broken glass, cement, concrete, for free. For free. Only condition, every member must sign off. It has to be unanimous inside each building. Guess what percentage of Kobe condominiums took advantage of this offer? Less than 43%. That means you could have had your garbage removed for free, or you could wait till you get together thirty-five dollars to $50,000 to pay some private firm to do it. Why spend $50,000? People in Kobe didn't know their neighbors' last names. Didn't know their last names, didn't have their email addresses, their phone numbers. They didn't know where to find them. They left. They couldn't find them afterwards. 2004, in New Orleans, roughly two months after the storm, one small area, it was the northeast corridor, I don't have the map right now, I'll show it actually. This neighborhood right here, called Village de l'Est, they came back in as a group, in a caravan of vans, RVs, and trucks, bringing bleach and supplies. They organized in their shelters in Texas and Arkansas, and came back as a group. They got back into the neighborhood, completely destroyed, like, you know, 14 feet of water. They called Entergy, the local power company, and said, please turn our power back on. Entergy said, really? Right? Right now, two months afterwards, there's no one else in the city. No, I'm literally no one else in the city right now. It's empty. You proved to us there's enough of you living there to warrant turning back the power on, which means substations have to go back on, power has to go back on, and so forth. They got 1,000 signatures in two days. How do you do that? You know everyone. You know their last names, phone numbers, email addresses. You're in touch with them. You feel the same way about the same issues. Collective action failed in Kobe. It worked in New Orleans. Last mechanism, we call mutual aid or informal insurance. Following every disaster, the normal providers of aid, and I mean childcare, gasoline, diapers, food, they're all shut down, medical supplies. Right? Nothing's open, especially in New Orleans where I lived. It took two and a half months roughly to get stuff back up again. So what do you do? Let's say your house was destroyed, you have to find a job, you've got a kid. You can't bring the kid to the job interview with you, right? Unless it's maybe for a, a job at a preschool. So what do you do? You need someone to take care of your kid. Well, there's no private preschool things open right now. So you, you have to find a neighbor to take care of your kid or a family member. Let's say you have to find a place to sleep. The hotels are all shut down. Your house is flooded. It's, there's mold growing in the basement. The place to stay, you have to borrow a place from your neighbor. You can't buy informal insurance with cash. Wealth doesn't help here. You've got to invest in those relationships before the disaster invest time and effort in building connections before that storm hits. Or else afterwards, you'll have no access to the things that you need. So informal insurance. You have the connections. You have neighbors nearby that know you, that can trust you. You can borrow a chainsaw. You can borrow a hammock. You can borrow whatever you need. Gasoline. Works. It works. Okay. Let's go to the data. 100 years ago, 1923, in Tokyo, a tremendous earthquake strikes the city. Roughly 45% of Tokyo is destroyed between the earthquake and the fires that break out. 45% is destroyed. 
Now, we tracked, I say the royal we, that's really me. I tracked for about a decade afterwards, as I'll show in a second, the population recovery across those 40 neighborhoods I mentioned before, the 40 Koban jurisdictions. If you break neighborhoods into two categories, high levels of bonds and low levels of bonds. Now, how do you measure in 1920s Tokyo connectivity? The nice thing about the police is they're really nosy. The police in the 1920s measured lots of stuff. For example, how many rallies, demonstrations, marches, and voter turnout did we see in our one kilometer by one kilometer break over this period? So we scanned those records, those handwritten records, aggregated them, and put them in here. So those neighborhoods in Tokyo that had more voter turnout, that had more marches, more rallies, more demonstrations, those we call high levels of social capital. Those who had lower levels of voter turnout and marches and demonstrations, we call low levels. Now, quite interesting. Let's start with the high levels. First of all, this bar is the average, right? It's the average. Now, the average correlates with about a 0 0.6%, 0 0.06, which is 6% population change. That's pretty good. 6% population change, that's pretty good. Because the comparison is these guys. Where are they located? That means they didn't bring people in or out. They stayed as they were. If they lost 1,000 people in their neighborhood, they gained no one back afterwards. No one. If they gained 1,000 before, nothing changed. Now, there's some outliers, for sure. Right? But this difference here between 0 and 6% is, if you're, if you're a nerd like me, highly significant. Very, very significant. Right? 0.001 significant. Now, this doesn't control for any other factors, though. Right? I mentioned before. So here's the eye test. If you think those other factors matter, for example, area of the precinct, crime damage, number of people who work at factories, number of trucks, how much money is being lent locally, people who were killed there, uptown or downtown, voter turnout, and the number of political gatherings per year. This is all in the book, by the way. One of the best predictors we have 100 years ago for which neighborhoods in Tokyo brought back people and brought in new population is the ability to have a collective action like voting. If you and your neighbors got out there and made your voices heard, if you had the feeling of connectivity and did stuff together, if a lot of you did this, so this is pretty high, right, 75%, three quarters of you get out there, then your neighborhood probably had close to a 3% range. If half of you or fewer turn out, then you're probably losing population over time. Holding everything else constant, damage, income, blah, 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 all those factors I mentioned before, 100 years ago, the best predictor of population return, people growing again, voter turnout. Now, maybe you think this is crazy. It's 100 years ago. Okay, no problem. Let's go forward 100 years in time. We'll take two neighborhoods, two neighborhoods side by side in Kobe after the storm. Okay? We'll call, call one Fukushima-A and one Nagata. Now, population, pretty much the same. Average age, pretty much the same. Slightly fewer households here, okay. Age about the same. Income, Japanese average right there. But look now at the next few measures. How long have you lived in the community? Were you born here? Do you own your home or are you renting? Working is the same, right? You tell me, which of these two communities do you think has better ties you can shout it out. It's okay. I know we're German, but we can... Fukushima B. 
right? Amazing. Side by side, same population, average age the same, number of households slightly the same, age, income. Can you tell me then, which of these two communities showed better leadership, self-organization, mobilization, and recovery after the storm? Or sorry, after, after the earthquake, sorry. Fukushima B. Fukushima B. Right? All the predictors that we have for strong local ties, living there a long time, sense of place, this is where you were born, your parents were there, right? When you were a kid, you own your home, you feel tied down there, right? So this is two very small neighborhoods, right? Each of these has around 200 people. So let's go to a slightly larger scale for Kobe. We can break Kobe into nine wards, okay? And you can track from 1990 to around 2009 population levels in those nine wards. So of course, in 1995, as you all know, there was a huge <laughs> change for all these areas, right? What happened? The Hanshinawaji Daishinsai killed almost 8,000 people. But what happened next? Well, let's see. Some areas have this horrendous drop, downward slope, and then a drop, right? But then they kind of bounce back. <laughs> Other areas hit the downward slope in 1995, and they bleed out population, if you'll pardon the expression, right? Nine wards in Kobe, yes? It, it is very different. Nishi, well, so we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Nishiku absorbed some of the survivors from other areas, right? 1995 hit, they were, it was growing because it was popular, and then it drew in a lot of people. Why Nishiku would draw them in and Sumaku, Tarumiku, Nagata, Hyogo, Nada, why would these lose? In other words, why would one area of Kobe... Yeah, they're growing beforehand, right? Why would some areas seem to attract people to move as a popular area, and other areas would die? So again, another eye test. Inequalities in there, population density, the number of non-profit organizations are in there. Welfare-dependent uh, households per capita, so how much money you need to get from the government to support a well popularity. So of all these, you can probably guess, the best predictor of growth rates in those wards of Kobe after the earthquake for the decade afterwards comes from, holding everything else constant, the number of non-profit organizations, Machizukuri organizations, you had formed there in your ward. What collective action can you do to make your community better? If you can't form any, or maybe one per 10,000 residents, then your neighborhood isn't exactly going to bring them in, right? Do you control for rent? Uh, yeah, the rent, so we tried with the, whoops, sorry, I'm skipping ahead. So with wel welfare-dependent households, there's a strong correlation between welfare dependency and costs. As you know, there, there are very few programs in Japanese uh, local governments that provide rent subsidies. So this welfare dependency was our attempt to control for rent and income. Best predictor we had, holding everything else equal, damage, blah, 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 was this question. How able were you as a community to organize yourselves and get things done? Now, let's say that you believe this story that I'm telling you. Right? The story is one where more than wealth or aid, more than inequality or population density, more than all those other factors, let's say you believe me, that social capital matters in the process of recovery. And hopefully we'll talk about Tohoku in a few minutes. 
what can we do about it, right? Because normally the talk now stops and I take a bow and you go, uh-huh, that's very nice. But if we actually give a damn about either our community or Tohoku or whoever we're talking about right now, what can we do as citizens, as scholars, as people involved in policy to make a difference? And for me, that's an important question to ask in any project I'm involved with. So let's talk about what we can do. If you guys recognize this man, he is Mr. Fred Rogers. You guys can watch television as kids, I see that. Mr. Fred Rogers, very famous American icon. Uh, he is now deceased, but he used to have a, t a show I used to love as a kid. He used to ask me, and everyone else watching the show, won't you be my neighbor, right? Mr. Rogers said, be my neighbor. So here's what we've been doing. We've been asking people to call or knock on the door of their neighbor and have a sleepover. A sleepover. And the idea is very simple. You guys have all been in Tohoku, right? You know about Tohoku? How much time was there between the tsunami siren and the arrival of the wave? How many, how many minutes elapsed? 30, 37 on average across the, we've, we've measured um, 280 so far uh, communities. So we, we, we average 37 minutes, depending on where, where you are. 37, so roughly 30 minutes, let's say, 35 minutes. If you're a healthy person who can hear, that's great, plenty of time, right? You get up, you walk up the hill, you're good. If you're in a bed, if you're in a wheelchair, if you can't hear and don't have any aid in the house with you, 37 minutes is your life because there's no way you're gonna survive. The only way you'll survive a 37 minute window is if someone knows what you need. That is, you need a car equipped for a wheelchair, you need help getting out of bed, you need access to a certain vehicle or whatever. 37 minutes. Mr. Rogers said, know your neighbors. So we've asked people to begin calling their neighbors up and getting to know their neighbors. What's their last name? What's their first name? Do, are they sick? Do they have medicine? Do they have wheelchairs? Do they have kids nearby? Do they have pets? The first responders in every disaster I mentioned have not been professionally trained first responders. Firemen, police officers, National Guards troops, GA Thai. The first responders in Kobe, in India, in Tohoku, the first responders were neighbors. And if your neighbors don't know what you need, then you're not going to get any help. So the first stage in building social capital, something that all of us can do, is to build ties to people who live nearby. Become better neighbors. Oh, by the way, roughly one half people we asked have said yes to sleepovers. Roughly one half. If you want to try it yourself. Feel it. Try it out. Okay. Uh, second scheme we're trying out in the field. Now, I used to live in Indiana. So this looks a little bit slow, but this is a block party. I know it doesn't look like much. You have to forgive me. That's what I have access to. Uh, what is a block party? In, in America, you block off the two ends of the roads with furniture, usually, like a couch or something. And then you drag your table into the middle of the road, and you have a barbecue with the whole street. All the kids come out and romp around and throw eggs and stuff. It's a lot of fun. So the block party. Now, in Japan, by the way, you have this already. It's called a matsuri. And in fact, in Japan, the central government gives grants to local communities to have matsuri. So what we're trying right now in San Francisco, in Wellington, and in Australia is seeing what happens when you have money available to local communities to break beyond my small circle of friends, or maybe my small circle of friends, right? And actually meet human beings, again, outside. So it could be a matsuri. In India, where I was doing research for Tamil Nadu, it wasn't a block party, it was a wedding, actually. Weddings in India are the chance for the poor to come out and get a, get a meal and meet people. I didn't bring the data, but by the way, in India, the best predictor of access to aid after the, after the tsunami was the number of times you'd been going to weddings beforehand. 
because you knew people. And if they didn't, get, didn't know you, you weren't on the lists, right? So weddings are really important things. Okay, two more field-tested programs. This is a focus group, but this is not just any focus group. This is not for some new Coca-Cola, you know, free of calories, gives you fiber kind of crap. No, this is actually a focus group in Nicaragua and in South Africa that we've been running from Harvard colleagues of mine. Very interesting. What we do is the following. We knock on doors in very bad neighborhoods or send postcards if they actually have mail. And we invite people to come to a group meeting and we randomly pick a topic. We could tell them it's about HIV AIDS, it's about women's rights, it's about the environment, schools, doesn't really matter. And we assemble groups between 7 and 15 people to meet every week for three months. We test them before we begin the first group meeting. We ask them all kinds of questions. Do you lock your door at night? Do you trust me? Do you trust people in your group? Do you trust your government? Do you trust your parents? All the kind of questions. We call that specific and generalized trust. And then at the end of the program, at the end of three months, we test them again. Can you guess? Everyone who came to the meetings for three months in very bad neighborhoods in Nicaragua and South Africa showed higher levels of trust, not just in people they'd been talking to every week, but in society at large. In other words, coming together for common cause on any topic, as I mentioned before, creates the belief that other people give a damn also. And they're going to help you if something bad happens, right? You can rely on them in times of need, whether it's your government or your local police officers. This creates trust. Last one, this is not counterfeit money from Canada, by the way. This is a real dollar. It's a Toronto dollar. Here in Japan, in fact, there are, well, I'll talk about this in one second, but this is the mechanism that we're using in Toronto right now to increase levels of volunteerism. How do you get people to come out of their homes, come off the computers, come off the Facebook and their cell phones, and do something to help someone else for a change? What do you do? Well, we're, we're motivated by things, right? So we offer them money. Not Canadian dollars or yen, or in this case, American dollars. We offer them a local currency, chikisuka in Japanese, right? Here's what we do. We say, if you read a book to someone at an old folks' home, help a kid out after school for tutoring, uh, clean up the, the, the river nearby, put garbage away, we'll pay you. Not in a currency that can be spent at a Walmart or a McDonald's, no. The currency will only be good at local mom and pop stores, owned locally. So a farmer's market, yes. Walmart, no. Mom and pop store, yes. McDonald's, no. A local barber, yes. Costco, no. What is this doing? Well, first of all, people on the fence about volunteering, we get them to get, get outside their homes. And then with that will, the goodwill that we're creating now, the involvement in the community, we're spreading it out because they've got to go to someone now face-to-face, -face, not some guy wearing a you know, red, white hat from McDonald's, but someone who's nearby, and give them the currency. And now the business owner has Canadian dollars, Toronto dollars. They can only be spent at other businesses nearby, not Costco, not some distributor from the national people, nearby. So they get a, get a haircut. And the barber has the $5 now. The barber takes it where? To a farmer's market, and it goes around. We call this the virtual cycle. Communities in Japan, America, and Canada with these programs have roughly a 14% high level of trust in other people, in communities like them that don't have these programs. So we know from the field these programs work. The problem now, of course, we have is convincing decision makers it's worth doing this. Okay. Tonight I've argued that in contrast to the popular theories of wealth and money, population density, of aid and so forth. What really drives recovery is bottom-up community involvement, connections, trust, reciprocity, group coordination. 
if people get together and do things well locally, then we see things like population growth, business reopening, and so forth. If there's fragmentation, a lack of leadership, you're waiting for the government to come help you, then we see far worse recoveries. Now, in the same way that developmental aid in the 2000s has gone from building, for example, in Africa, bridges, ports, and roads, to building human and social capital, I'm pushing us now to think about post-disaster recovery, not about infrastructure, physical infrastructure, building new boats, fishing boats, or building new traps, but rather building up social connections. That's the way we can go, moving away from physical infrastructure to social ones. So now we're talking about is, rather than worrying about how many new roads have been rebuilt, how many ports are there, how many new schools are there, the question is how many social ties are intact in Minami, Soma, for example, or Ofunato, or uh, any other community up in Tohoku and Miyagi and Iwate. How do we build ties there, keep them strong, keep them together? At the end of the day, more than physical infrastructure, social infrastructure matters.